Hello, my name is Eleanor Fox. I am a professor at New York University School of Law. And I am going to talk to you today about an area in my field. My field is competition law. It's also called antitrust law. That's the same thing. And the area I'm going to talk to you today is about what we call extraterritoriality and convergence, cooperation, and whether we need an international system. Competition law, or antitrust, is about markets. It's about helping to make markets work better for the people, for, for you as consumers, for efficient or potentially efficient entrepreneurs that want to get into the market to supply something to consumers. So it's a very dynamic, virtuous circle. You have to think of markets first because we hope that the markets work well to do all of that. But then we find exercises of business power that try to keep the market from working. Businesses that can exploit people and exclude people. So bottle up, uh, clog up the bottleneck and prevent the market from working. So if markets work well, we get good goods and services at lower prices. So this is the problem, the international problem in competition law. Competition law is national law. At the moment, it's not international law. And yet, our markets are very international. They are global, especially in view of the waves of globalization that we have had I mean, since the late 1970s, but then very much in the 80s and 90s. And now we have huge waves of globalization, which really means technology advances and transactions cross countries' lines. And businesses try to get the best deal they can for the inputs they put into their product to sell to people all over the world. So commerce crosses borders. And yet we have only national law. And we have about 130 countries that have this law on their books as national law. So the problem is how to get these national laws to work together to get the best product for consumers, to make the markets work best for everyone, the consumers and the efficient producers or potentially efficient or entrepreneurs trying to get into the market, how to get a system that is coherent. And here's the next part of the problem, which you've probably seen lately. We had a big wave of globalization, which you could think of as a cosmopolitan effort to span border lines. People sell all over the world. People buy all over the world. It requires a certain kind of fluidity. And then um, we have a new movement, which we call nationalization. Uh, and this means that countries that used to be very open um, and thinking about the world as their market are pulling back and wanting to close some of their borders, they think, to protect their citizens. Um, they think to protect jobs in their countries. So this is a counter move that would be against the open vision. It would be a more closed vision. It would mean that markets 
don't work as well because there's a cap on how well they can work. It could mean that prices will go up and that people's opportunities to engage in the market are fewer. And those who like the nationalization think it means preserving jobs. Uh, this is a question. It is a disputed question. It would preserve some jobs here and now, but it might make countries and their businesses less efficient, and it might be a downward spiral in terms of the effort to internationalize and to lift countries up to a better position to have trade and competition in the world. So in my lecture, I am going to go back to the first moves of globalizing and internationalizing this body of law called competition law and have a little timeline through, through time when we tried to but didn't have an international treaty. Um, then it became necessary for individual countries to reach out to help to do for themselves um, what um, an international treaty might do, that is protect themselves from restraints of competition in international markets. And when they reach out, that's called extraterritoriality. So while we have these periods and case law on how much can countries reach out, um, we also have another effort at the same time, which I will come to, uh, which is an effort to have convergence of law. Because if you have 130 countries all reaching out to have law on prohibiting or letting to go through the same transaction, uh, you will have a crazy quilt and lots of conflicts. But if everybody has the same rule of law, uh, you can have a lot of countries in on the same game coordinating, like coordinating as to whether this big merger is anti-competitive or pro-competitive, and coordinating on are you going to stop the merger or let it go through or put conditions on the merger uh, that will protect against what is anti-competitive. So there is a huge movement which is for a very large, to a very large extent successful in trying to make the laws of the, very diff of the different countries almost the same. So you would have a level playing field and smoothness across the world. But also, as you will see when I go on, different countries have some different objectives even within the same area that we call competition law. Some countries, like the United States, want to have their companies be very free to do almost everything they want to do if it's not a conspiracy to fix price. And other countries think they have to protect themselves from exclusionary practices that might squeeze the smaller companies out of the market. And developing countries are more likely to be on the latter wavelength. Uh, that is, they feel multinationals are exceeding their bounds in abusing dominance and not letting their own companies uh, use the space to get more efficient and be bigger players in the world. So we still have conflicts. We have a big movement towards convergence. We still have conflicts. We still have it as the case that developing countries that which have less power and they need more capacity building to play the game on a level playing field, they get what is called the sure end of the stick very often.
Um, so all of this can lead to thoughts about should the law be internationalized? Should it be all of these countries? It's not really going to be 130 trying to play the same game, but it is like 20 or 30 that are in looking at the same transactions. Um, so should we get international law? And what would it take to get international law? And you'll see as I close the lecture, it's not in the cards to get an international law of antitrust now, but there are various step-back positions that would make a more coherent um, competition and trading competition regime in the world uh, that would take advantage of the efficient and helpful energies of competition as well as prohibit the abusive uses of power of firms. For the next part of my lecture, I want to give you a little more grounding in what antitrust law is um, in order to understand better these international aspects. Um, the international aspects are aspects that can cover many fields. They can be generalized to many fields, but there certainly is a very particular uh, particularity of the antitrust laws. What do they do? So this is what antitrust laws do. Uh, there are three main categories of law in antitrust law. And the first category is antitrust law prohibits cartels. And this means hardcore cartels, and that means agreements among competitors that have no reason other than to lessen the competition among them. So as you can imagine, it would lead to exploitation of the consumer. It's the companies just getting raw power to raise their prices and disadvantage the consumers. Uh, so they can do it by price fixing and dividing markets. And that's considered, at least in the developed world, it's the worst kind of violation. It's a clear violation if you find the facts, and it's very harmful. It raises prices and keeps people from getting what they need. Uh, that is in the law of virtually every country in the world, and some countries have some exceptions. And in addition, some countries kind of do the same thing by the state moving into the market, and that can make a smaller space in which the competition law can work. So the second big area of competition law is the law against monopoly, bad acts of monopolies, and abuse of a dominant position. Some countries phrase it in the monopoly term, and some countries phrase the violation in terms of dominance, but it's the same genre of law. So this law prevents dominant or monopoly firms from taking acts that are strategically against, they're usually against rivals, but they, the effect is to raise prices to consumers. So they're blocking out the path of rivals. They're keeping their own power, or sometimes by the acts they're getting more power, 
more market power that entails more power to raise prices to consumers. And they're keeping out of the market the firms that would be their best challengers and would give better options to consumers and lower the prices. And the third big area is mergers. And so you have two competitors, or they might not be competitors. They may, may be in a buyer-supplier chain, for example. Um, but in order to be an antitrust problem, the market usually has to have relatively few firms in it to begin with for the firms to have market power. And there have to be barriers to others to get in, or else they wouldn't keep market power. And then there are various configurations to figure out, is this merger anti-competitive? It might be pro-competitive. It might be efficient. And I'm sure you see in the press all the time, you see these huge mergers. And they're going to present their merger to the competition agencies. And you might wonder, how could they possibly get away with it? But they usually, they will almost always have a story that this merger is efficient. It is going to do something new that people weren't able to do before. It's going to be able to expand markets and reach people that could not be reached before. It's going to incentivize inventiveness. And so if the merger actually does all of those things, it might be pro-competitive and could lower prices to consumers. Um, but that's a real question. In fact, it's a question on which People have intuitions, uh, a priori intuitions. So this, what I'm going to say, is not the science of analyzing a big merger. Um, but there are a lot of people, especially in our society today, you see it in the press all the time, people are worried about big increases in concentration. And they're worried that big business linking up with other big business is likely to get power and crush those that are smaller than it. There are a few other areas, but those are the big substantive areas. So now let's go on and talk about a timeline of, as I said at the beginning, the first effort to get internationalization, and then it didn't work, and what we did in the interim, and how we're doing today in trying to do the harmonization and the convergence and coordination in the absence of an international law. So the first big effort was called the Havana Charter. This is the first big world effort. It was noticed in the World War II that there were many cartels and they had both um, political and economic fallout. The cartels of very big business, agreements among these very big business, um, led to a situation in economies that the authoritarian governments could use the very big business, the few firms that there were, to carry out war efforts. Um, and so there were cartels very much involved in the background, and not just background, in World War II. So countries, companies, big companies, were conspiring with one another to help autocrats, and that led 
to the idea that there ought to be an international rule against such conspiracies and against both the conspiracies to fix prices and the conspiracies to exclude and prevent market access. So this means to prevent, say, American companies from selling into Europe or vice versa. That would be do companies in one country have access to markets in another country. Um, the Havana Charter was drafted and vetted, but did not succeed, and why? So here's another word that becomes important in thinking about our whole subject matter, sovereignty. Um, United States was one that was responsible for pulling out. It was apparently not the only one, but United States was worried about loss of sovereignty if it goes into an international agreement. And if there is an international agreement, there has to be some enforcement of the international agreement. Who is going to enforce it? Do we trust the enforcers? So United States line was, we have to preserve our sovereignty and not pull our sovereignty to be in an international agreement. You will see this theme coming back again because this idea of international antitrust was robustly debated in the 1990s, and you will hear this argument again. It's like preserving your own sovereignty versus community vision of the world and having rules that should be good for everybody, uh, perhaps in my field, except for laggards. I mean, you don't want rules that going, are going to just protect all inefficient companies. You want rules that will protect the process of competition so that consumers will be better off. Uh, so the Havana Charter failed. This is in 1947, 1948. Uh, but the idea never died uh, that there can be international cartels. They can be cartels that are to one country. I'm going to talk about United States, offshore to United States. Um, they can be big firms from other countries that are conspiring to raise their prices in the United States. And if you don't have international rules, uh, the American idea was, well, we have to do it ourselves. Um, so we're going to expand the reach of our law. And we're going to condemn and punish firms that do these acts, even if they do them abroad, even if their own country doesn't prohibit the act we're going to catch them for violating our laws. This started a rule which is now pretty widely accepted in the world, which is called the effects doctrine. And that is if firms abroad um, have a plan, you can call it a conspiracy, um, to harm competition in the United States, and they do, they intend to, and it has the effect of doing so, it can be caught by the harmed country's law. Uh, United States was the first country that articulated this doctrine, and trading partners resisted it at first, 
especially when there were different rules around the world. So not everyone agreed that it was bad to have a cartel agreement um, until time went on. So we'll see, as time goes on, everybody agrees. And also as time goes on, in absence of international law, countries agree that they need an effects doctrine to protect themselves from offshore restraints, especially targeted into their own country. So this effects doctrine is also called the Alcoa Doctrine because it came up in a case called Alcoa. Uh, so now I'm going to move on to a really big um, span of years and go through that really quickly and in terms of what happened in terms of extraterritorial reach. Extraterritorial reach can lead to conflict and resolution of the conflict. Um, so the years, 1950 to the end of 1989, that's when 19, end of 1989 was when the Berlin Wall fell. Uh, so in all of these years, especially at the beginning, and especially United States, keeps expanding the reach of its law. And at the same time, it is expanding the economic locations of its businesses. And for example, setting up businesses in other countries and not having much regard to the people and conditions in the countries, um, setting up plants in France but and employing a lot of people and then it gets a new best opportunity, it closes the plant. And there were many um, contestation of this American expansionism. Uh, this is documented in a really good book by Jean-Jacques Servan Schreiber, which came out in 1967 called The American Challenge, where the Americans go everywhere in the world and move on this efficiency line, do what's efficient, but don't take account of whom you hurt. And so expanding in the world and then preventing companies abroad from doing in the United States what our laws prohibited in the United States. So it's in this period of time when the trading partners of the United States uh, began to be very uncomfortable with American expansionism, and there were many complaints about how the U.S. applied its competition law. And in this period of time, the U.S. courts began to use notions of comedy and say, well, the courts should look to see whether this proposed antitrust enforcement is treading on the toes of another country that has a bigger stake in the interest, in, in the matter. And if it does, should refrain from the lawsuit. This always sounded very good. It never did much. Um, and this idea of comedy is still on the books and hovering over us. But as one might have predicted, the courts would say, okay, we do this balancing. We look to see what are the interests of Japan or UK. And we've balanced all the interests and we find that US interest is stronger. So it was sometimes mere words, but has more than a germ of truth because it's certainly true 
that when you get into this area with so many laws and they're all national and they can clash, it's very important to think about the interests of everyone, not just the interests of the enforcing country. Now, two other things happening in this great time spread of time that I'm um, passing through very quickly. Of course, the European Union was formed. It was at first the European community. It was the European economic community. Uh, so for many years, it was the United States that had the antitrust laws in the world, and other countries did not. Canada did have a law a year before U.S., but it didn't enforce it robustly because it was criminal only for a long time. And being criminal, it was extremely hard to prove a violation. Germany adopted a very fine antitrust law right after World War II. And European Union, then European Community, adopted the Treaty of Rome establishing the European Economic Community in 1957. It went into effect in 1958 and became robustly enforced after certain regulations were passed beginning in 1962. So let's say beginning the mid-1960s, um, you can see a lot of action from the United States and the European Union. Sometimes they would clash. Um, of course, Germany too, and a few other countries, but European Union, when the matter was of community dimension, would take over most of those cases. The other big point I want to mention before I go to the fall of the Berlin Wall is um, the developing countries, especially in the mid-1970s, developing countries became very concerned with the multinationals, many or most of which coming, are coming from the United States, and they would go into their countries and set up joint ventures or sometimes do it individually but impose many restraints. Um, for example, they would impose restraints that would not allow the domestic firms to ship back to the United States, that would block up their channels for being efficient and for growing. Uh, there were many other kinds of restraints. So the developing countries were very concerned about restrictive business practices which later we call anti-competitive practices. You can think of it all together. And particularly of the multinationals. They wanted to grow their own firms. They wanted to develop their own economies. And they felt that they were in a straitjacket. So they initiated a conversation in the United Nations and a big negotiation um, with the developed countries the communist bloc and the developing countries. They, of course, there was a lot of bargaining, and there were things that the developed countries would not give up. Uh, but there were aspects that the developed countries got, and there is now an, a set of principles 
that was at first called Ethical Principles to Control the Business Restrictive Practices of the Multinational Companies. And it was an agreement in 1980, a voluntary agreement, that virtually all the countries of the world signed. So as you can expect, when if you get all the countries on board, there was negotiation and ambiguity. But that is the only voluntary antitrust code we have in the world, and we still have it. So it sets forth a lot of principles and rules that companies should not do. It's not now considered limited to multinationals. I mean, it's about what firms can do and not do. And it has many principles, including the anti-cartel principle. It's modified by a rule of reason for almost everything because the developed countries were afraid of rigid rules that would catch them too easily. And whenever you have a rule of reason, it allows a lot of gateways for justifying what you did. Um, and one other important aspect I didn't mention before uh, that is in this agreement, the set of principles, is about state action. I mean, what happens when nation state, what happens when the nation state um, is in the marketplace and does various restraints that are just as harmful as private company restraints? So this agreement says that state action is not excluded. And, and that actually is a very good step to think about state-owned enterprises that are actually in the market, are they and should they be subject to the same laws as private enterprise? Um, around the world today, they mostly are. And there are exceptions and defenses for what the state must do to carry out the public interest of the country. But in general, state-owned enterprises are subject to the law. So we are now ready to go on to the end of 1989. And this is a period you might basically think about as the 90s and going into the new millennium. And this is a period where we have a great wave of globalization. So at the very end of 1989, the Berlin Wall fell. And what is the relevance to this subject? The relevance is that when the Berlin Wall fell, there were many communist nations that changed their economic system as well as their political system. So they moved from communism or socialism to democracy or some form of democracy. And what was their economic system? under the communism or socialism. The economic system was very much a command and control system. It was not a market system. So this means it was dictated by the country from above. And companies were set up and told, you produce all of the widgets of the country and this much, and you produce all of the gidgets and this much. So that is command and control. It's not letting the market work. It is government trying to decide economically how to satisfy the needs of its people. Command and control was replaced by market systems.
So it was no longer that the government would watch out for the people and provide for the people, but they were moving to what looked rather new and to some people threatening they're going to move to a market and let the market decide. And these countries were worried that if you move to a market, now you're relying on private enterprise and won't the private enterprise be greedy and exploit everybody? And that's where antitrust comes in. They wanted antitrust laws to limit and control the power of the private enterprise. Uh, so they all adopted not only market systems, but competition law or antitrust law systems. There were other reasons why a number of countries adopted market and antitrust systems in this period of time. Um, one reason was for the Central and Eastern European countries. Um, they, some of them, especially the most westerly, wanted to join the European Union. And to join, they had to approximate their national law to the EU law so it fit, was totally sympathetic. And to do that, they had to have a competition law. Um, I'll just move back for a minute. Like, why did the EU have to have a competition law? The European Treaty of Rome, which I mentioned, that established the economic community, had as its basic idea that post, this is just post-World War II, the basic idea was they were going to get community and peace and anchor peace by having a market system uh, where there would be free movement in the market across the whole European Union, which of course meant Germany, Italy, France, Belgium, and the idea was these countries that had been enemies would be brought together and they would not be hostile anymore. They would be traders with tra uh, tr uh, trading with one another. And so that there should be a common market. And the tearing down the barriers between and among the nations also meant they had to have law that said the companies within those nations cannot re-erect the barriers between the countries by division of markets. So that meant that the European Union needed competition law right in its basic treaty, and it has it right in its basic treaty, um, that companies may not abuse dominance and they may not have conspiracies that restrain trade in the European Union. So now you have these Central and Eastern European countries that would like to join the European Union, and they must have law that's very sympathetic with the EU law. There were a couple of other reasons that led to what became a real spread of competition law in the early 1990s and middle 1990s, even later 1990s, and that was the World Bank and the International um, Monetary Fund give out aid to developing countries 
and to give out that aid. They were requiring the developing countries to have law in place that would establish rule of law in basic areas because they thought that the developing countries needed these various laws and the rule of law under the laws to get well-working economies so that if IMF and World Bank gives them loans, the loans would pay back, that the countries would be on a good footing, a good economic footing. So a number of countries, especially developing countries, introduced antitrust also in the 1990s for their loans. Um, whether or not they went through the mental exercises of thinking about and determining, yeah, we need these laws, they are good for us, the laws were imposed. They did need the laws, and they were good for them, but the laws were imposed. Um, so now we have, in the 1990s, huge numbers of countries are suddenly adopting competition law, like 20, 30, 40 countries adopt a competition law. And with the application of so many laws, it began to be recognized that in a world that's very global, it really makes sense to have some international rules. In 1969, um, there was a ministerial meeting of the World Trade Organization. World Trade Organization becomes a possible vehicle for having international rules of antitrust. And World Trade Organization um, was formed, as you know, at the end of the Uruguay round um, and always trying to ratchet down the trade restraints between and among countries. And as they ratcheted down the trade restraints, there came to be more private business restraints. So countries were no longer protected by their quotas and tariffs. Um, and then they would suddenly notice there would be international cartels in the world uh, that were try trying actually to undermine the more liberal trade in the world. So in this, the Singapore Ministerial, 1996, uh, there was a working group that was established on trade and competition to explore where competition rules were needed and what would be a good framework for competition rules for the world that meshed with the trade rules for the world. And in this period of time, for the next at least four or five or six years, there was a lot of conversation among the countries and experts in the countries about how to design an international system. And a lot of it was very constructive. As I have said, it didn't work. Uh, there, was a very, there were very good proposals for having a framework agreement that would be in the WTO that would say no cartels in international commerce, no abusive dominance in international commerce. Um, but the United States, on the one hand, hated the idea, and developing countries, on the other hand, were really worried about the idea for 
to reasons that are actually unsympathetic with each other. The United States, by the end of the 1990s, had a very developed competition law. And by that, I mean not only what the law prohibits, but what must not be prohibited. So United States has many cases, uh, especially Supreme Court cases, that will say something like this. We don't want a law, competition law that goes too far and is too aggressive because we don't want it to be handicapping efficient firms and chilling their competition and holding them back from hard competition, which will produce the lowest prices and the best technology. We do want and have a very strong anti-cartel law, which is distinguished on the basis of this is an agreement among competitors with no reason but to exploit people. But if you look at, for example, the law of monopolization and abuse of dominance, there are many cases in which there are very big firms, and today highly technological firms, that are doing things in their business world that are making life very tough for challenging firms. And they might cause small business to go out of business. But the idea is, or this theory is, that these firms will have many strategies that will actually be good for competition and good for efficiency, and that antitrust authorities should be very careful in interfering with their behavior um, because they might be chilling good competition. So United States has this law, which is probably more laissez-faire than any other country in the world, save one or two others and is worried that in an international bargain, they're going to get bargained down. And the center of gravity of an international bargain will be protect us from the dominant firms, protect us from the strategies that are going to squeeze us out. So United States is now very skeptical about going to a big bargaining table at which they're not going to win or else they just don't make the bargain in the end. Uh, they're worried that the international consensus majority uh, will be not for them the right rule of law. And they're also worried about who is going to judge when there is a claim of violation, undoubtedly against the big American firms, America thinks. And, and you know there are about five firms that are in the headlights of antitrust authorities all around the world, like, like Google, Apple, Amazon, um, that are American high-tech firms that are doing very well and are accused of abusive practices in European Union, China, country, company, countries around the world. So this is what US is afraid of. It doesn't want to go into the international bargain. And it doesn't. I mean, it, it says this is a bad idea. I don't want it. Now, why are the developed con developing countries worried about this possible international bargain? They are afraid that the bargain will be too pro-American. <laughs> so they're afraid 
that they're going to lose their space for industrial policy and be unable to protect their companies from fierce, ruthless competition, which they might label abusive, coming from the rest of the world. So given these two oppositions, the WTO idea did not have any traction. Meanwhile, and connected to this, the Americans thought it would move the forum away from the WTO to something more sympathetic to them. And they, but with a lot of others, it wasn't just Americans, began to talk seriously in another forum. It's called the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, OECD. And to work in the OECD, which is an organization of developed countries, for a rule against cartels, which Americans were always wanting, a rule against cartels. And a, an international rule against cartels would be fine and terrific. The OECD does not have any enforcement powers. The WTO, if you had an agreement in the WTO, there are violations of rules and a way to enforce the violations of rules. The OECD does not. It's really a research and talking organization where one can establish norms and norms that, even if they're not backed up by enforcement, they can have an impact in the way the world does things. So the result was a, a, an agreement in the OECD against hardcore cartels. Then there was also another move, and that was and is called the International Competition Network. So I'm coming to the year 2000, the new millennium, uh, because this new idea was implemented in 2001. And this new idea was, you've been talking all this time about rules from the top down. What we need is grassroots work from the bottom up to talk to one another. That means agency, competition agency, enforcement agency to competition agency uh, to try to get convergence of rules and just have a lot of cross-fertilization and a lot of cooperation. Um, because if the fear is clashes of jurisdictions, that can be worked out to a very large extent if the law is basically the same. So beginning in 2001, we got this great new organization called the International Competition Network. Um, it is a network of the competition authorities of the world. Almost all but China have joined. China does have a competition law, which began in effectively in 2008. And so far, it has not been able to join the international group, but it does have a lot of cross-fertilization with virtually every agency. 
within the international competition network. Um, there are working groups. There are many opportunities for cross-fertilization. Uh, the working groups work in particular areas like mergers, pre-merger notification, uh, what are the rules, if countries have different rules, why different rules, and then working groups can come out with a proposal to say um, this seems to be a consensus and a best practice, and then it has a number of best practices, and countries tend to adopt the best practices. And this has helped a huge amount in terms of international convergence. So I will be coming back to ICN, but I want to mention, as we're just at the point of the millennium, a UN project. And I mention it, but also ask, does it have a relationship to all that I'm saying? Or is it something totally different? And that is, remember the Millennium Development Goals that were articulated by the United Nations um, at the time of the millennium, that is year 2000, worried about poverty, especially in developing countries, and exclusion. So those goals were first adopted in 2000. The countries took the norm seriously and tried to do what they could to alleviate poverty and did quite a lot in the time between 2000 and 2015 when that tranche expired. And in 2015, to follow up, because the job is hardly done and there's deep poverty all over the world, especially developing countries, uh, the UN adopted the, the Sustainable Development Goals, the SDGs, trying to eliminate the severe poverty. And also, here's where my field comes in, trying to empower people. Now, to eliminate poverty, a lot has to be done, and including here and now, you know, food, medical care, education, uh, schools, well, educational training. Uh, but people also need to have roots into markets so that they can sustain themselves. And this is where my field comes in, that competition law, now I have to stress, and competition policy has a lot to do with opening up those roots into productive activity in markets. If markets are closed off by power, and it could be political power, and it could be private power, so it could be multinational power, but it can also be an individual state that is very cronyistic and gives all of the opportunity to its cronies and therefore sort of squeezes the space in which the market can work. Uh, when those things happen, there's like no economic opportunity. And this relationship of markets to the SDGs is this, that for the SDGs, it's mostly contemplating what people need here and now immediately and to get them out of the dire poverty, but it is also 
empowering people to help themselves because that's really the gold star that you're looking for the route that people can participate in markets. I say that's competition policy mostly. It's not antitrust law mostly because many of the things that are barriers to the people having a decent pathway into the market are state barriers. They're rules, regulations, and laws. They can be licensing laws. They can be laws that make it impossible for a poor person to be able to file a notice that it's going to do business in a certain area and to get approval when it needs approval. So competition policy, often it is the case that the competition agency will work together, for example, with the World Bank to look around and say, what does the market need? Where can we target our efforts to get rid of these barriers to entry and success and moving up in the economic mainstream. And so they will spend their advocacy efforts trying to get rid of the barriers so that the people can engage in the markets. Uh, so for the last part of my lecture, I want to move into the globalization and its pushback in the 2000s. And what competition law has been doing in the area and what competition authorities, competition law authorities are doing in the area. Globalization continues even though there's a pushback for in favor of nationalization. Um, new technologies continue to be developed and they have effects all over the world. The big high-tech companies and new e technology platforms have effects all over the world. And global value chains do also. So as part of the globalization effort looking for like Walmart looking for the best possible deals it can get in the world to buy its food products that it will eventually carry. Um, it will look to see where it can get everything it needs most cheaply and where it finds these elements of its chain, um, it will have a global value chain that will, in the end, probably sell very cheap goods, um, maybe to Americans, but wherever it's located. But meanwhile, squeezing the very small firms. Other examples will be big mergers, like a pending merger right now, Monsanto Buyer which may have many efficiencies, and I just want to talk about the other side of the coin. Um, one company is the leader in fertilizer and the other the leader in seeds, and farmers need both. And such a large enterprise is probably going to be able to squeeze the poor farmers in Africa um, to pay the highest amount for the seeds and to take the lowest amount for any product they have to sell. 
so the global value chains are creating a situation that makes it more difficult for developing countries to have the space to grow. It doesn't mean that they are illegal under the antitrust laws. They are probably not unless certain things happen. And one of those things that could happen is that one of these big mergers creates great buying power abroad. And the creation of buying power is such a thing that falls within the sights of what's an illegal merger. A merger is illegal when it creates market power. So creating the market power is usually looked at from the point of view it's creating power over sellers and exploiting the sellers. But if you had a merger whose only intent and effect, I'll tell you why I said that in a minute, is to squeeze the small farmers. They're creating buying power. It's called monopsony power if it's creating a single buyer. That would be illegal under most antitrust laws. I said if it were for no other purpose because these companies are almost surely going to have efficiency defenses. But I want to focus you on the fact that this could, and in most jurisdictions, would be a violation if everything, all the effects are within one country. So say all the effects of the squeezed people because of the buying power are in the same country as the firms that are merging and selling, um, US would take account of it. So here's the problem. The buying power victims are in developing countries. The multinationals that create the buying power are in developed countries. They disregard the harms abroad. They have they would say, no reason, they're not altruistic. They could be, they should be, they're not altruistic. They would say, oh, that's fine. I mean, that we create more buying power against others that are just foreigners, that's fine. And this is a problem. I mean, it's a problem on the table. It's not even very much on the table. It should be talked about more. It's a problem of not having a comprehensive law. So you see from the top, where are all the harms, where are all the benefits, and to allow transactions to go through uh, when the harms are not too great, when the benefits are great, and even to take account of the harms and do something about it. Our law misses that. It's a gap in the law. And as you would expect, the developing countries don't have a very strong voice to prevent such a merger. So if such a merger, I'm saying such a merger because I'm thinking Monsanto buyer if it had no efficiency effects. Um, the developed countries are going to approve the merger. The developing countries might feel harms that they can do nothing about. Their law on the books might say you can do something about it, but in practice they have no power to do it the merger happens, the best they can do is to think, is there some condition I can put on the merger that will make it a little less harmful to me? 
Another example that is somewhat similar is the huge cement merger that happened a few years ago, Holsom Lafarge, where the two leading cement companies in the world decided they were going to merge. Cement happens to be one of the one or two areas where you see the most restraints on competition, cartels, and that's because it fits within just where you would expect the firms to cartelize and price fix. That means you have a product that's relatively homogeneous. It's pretty heavy, so transportation costs are high, and you can't easily ship it into an area where prices are high and you want to push them down. And the companies have been collaborating for years, conspiring for years to raise the prices of cement. Virtually every country in the world that has active antitrust enforcement has cement cartels in their sites. And yet here are the two biggest companies. Are you going to allow them to merge? And the answer is yes. The developed countries are let that merger through with a lot of divestitures where there was exact overlap, horizontal overlap. So where they were actual competitors, they had to spin off product. But the problem was developed countries can say, oh, we did what was necessary for us. And developing countries have almost no power to do anything. And this merger was a merger to monopoly in some developing countries. Those countries tried to do what they could to keep you know, sep subsidiaries separate. But the harm is done. There's no rule in the, in the world as a world rule that would let them prevent that merger. Uh, so I want to come to some conclusory remarks. And my conclusory remarks are where are we going now? And also, where, what is the position of developing countries in terms of their having a better platform for contesting international restraints that hurt them? Um, where we are going is we're going along the ICN path. We're not going along a WTO path. That means that ICN is wonderful, and it does great things for what it is cut out to do. So it does a lot of nudging towards harmonization of rules. The nudging towards harmonization is on the wavelength of what the developed countries need and want. The developing countries are always invited to give their voice in every ICN committee and group. But it's the developed countries that have all of the person power within the agencies to do the drafts. And the developing countries have very few resources to spend on such a voluntary organization that takes a lot of time and technical expertise. So despite efforts of the ICN to get more developing countries involved, what comes out of the ICN has a sort of 
I don't want to say bias or favoritism, but in some sense, it is a leaning towards what developed countries want and do. This is still, number one, very often there's a coinciding of those interests. Many of the recommended practices, probably most that come out of ICN, are congenial to the whole world. And it could be looked at as glass half full or glass half empty, that the developing country's voice is not heard to tweak a rule. Um, so ICN proceeds and proceeds well. For developing countries, they do have a route that they have been taking advantage of, which is more regionalism. So in Africa, for example, there are a number of regional free trade areas. And there are also combinations, I mean, collaborations of the country's competition authorities, uh, one being the African Competition Network, sorry, it's African Competition Forum, uh, that vets these problems, talks about them, and tries to come to some convergence or cooperation of the African countries. Uh, that is good, and I think it's very progressive. And I think basically that's where we are and where we will be for a long time. A concluding remark about what's missing in the world. I was talking about what's not quite right in the world, but this is about what's missing in the world. And I want to put it this way. I'm missing because we don't have a global vision. I want to put it this way, that there is something that you might call a global commons of competition. We have enormous consensus on the rule against cartels, which is the biggest obstruction of that global commons of competition. It's no longer the case that one country owns its market. We have a community of the market, the global market. So when one country has a cartel, including an export cartel that impairs the global competition, commons, um, this is a global offense, not on the books, but on the norms that we are developing. And I think it's helpful to look at this problem that way. When we talk about extraterritoriality, we go back to the nation and what it can reach out to prevent and what it should restrain itself from preventing because it steps on the toes of another country. I think it's fair to think about the big picture and the global commons uh, so that nations should not only do what's good for them in preventing anti-competitive restraints, but nations should not do what impairs the world, such as an export cartel, which is not prohibited by the country's national law because it hurts only the foreigners. Uh, so as we try to move forward, I think we are getting progress on some global norms, some concept perhaps of the global commons of competition, and 
moving forward in ICN, which is very productive, moving forward in regional agreements, which can help the voice of those that have been relatively voiceless, and much more attention has to be paid to developing countries and powerless countries and has to be paid to the idea and the fact that power counts and power sometimes has to be counteracted. Um, Thucydides said in the Peloponnesian War, right as the world goes is only a question between equals in power. While the strong do what they can, the weak suffer what they must. That's an important lesson on power. Everybody would love to, well, not everybody, but many would love the world to have an open, efficient competition system that tears down barriers, especially to those who are worse off and can join the economic mainstream and try to prevent poverty, counteract poverty by giving more channels for participation in the world. There are many things that can be done that are a combination of efficiency and equity. The Concern with the equity does not undercut efficiency. At least it does not have to undercut efficiency. And we ought to work in this space where equity and efficiency coincide. Thank you.